Left Behind is a multimedia franchise that started with a series of 16 best-selling religious novels by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang by Tim LaHaye and Jerry B. Jang. Oh my God! Do you say that? I'm playing this The future has come to pass. Oh boy. Hey, everybody. Welcome to I Survived the Rapture, the podcast where we examine the Left Behind series so you don't have to. I am Shane Bazell. And I'm Gavin Russell. Yeah, we are here on this second off-the-record episode as we put to bed Tribulation Force, the continuing drama of those left behind. Thank you guys for joining us. Oh, man. <laughs> oh, this is a this is a proper burial of this book. I, I low key never want to touch a copy of Tribulation Force again, and unfortunately, I probably will once we get into the Kurt Cameron movies. I think that the because they only made it three movies in, um, they only did Left Behind, they did Tribulation Force, which instead of releasing in theaters, I think went directly to VHS, and then they did a third one, which completely went off the rails, called World at War. So that doesn't even follow uh, Nikolai? It kind of does. It has plot points from it, but it gets real weird. So, okay, this is your first time, because when I was in middle school reading this, I think this one just kind of blurred on by. I don't really remember it that well. I was still probably just listening to it in the background while playing Sonic Adventure 2 on GameCube. So how did this hit you? First of all, it was just a giant slog, like we've said before. Like, there were parts that were genuinely entertaining, but less so than the first book. Because the first book, the parts that I went, oh, this is just bad, weren't that much. Like, there was some problematic parts that I was like, okay, let's just get through this. For the most part, Left Behind Book 1 was genuinely entertaining. This was not most of the time and that's what made it such a brutal thing where most of the really interesting stuff would happen for like five to ten pages and then we'd just get filler and then you just have that last 20 pages where it's just like oh man we we need to actually advance plots let's just shove everything in this one little section yeah i noticed that too and i feel like the stuff that was bad in book one failed in an entertaining way. Yeah. You know, like it, even it, w- it was cheesy or the stakes were really high, but it was dumb mm-hmm. and we could kind of point and laugh at it and talk about the dialogue and other things. This spent so much time and you called it the first episode we did on this book, spent so much time on a really bad romance plot that then blossomed into two bad romance plots. It didn't really add anything. And yeah, and the and the latter romance plot, which, okay, so like Buck and Chloe, that one, it could have been like a little bit shorter. I know you're trying to like set them up, but then like the Amanda White one, I, I've I said this before in the last episode, but I just really want to hit in. Amanda White is mentioned once in the book before the time skip. And then all of a sudden, like, oh, Rayford has bestowed a wife. Yeah, he's just kind of granted a wife. And I think for the audience, that is not supposed to feel weird. And this is something that's been weighing on me since we finished the book. 
the focus on the romance subplot, the fact that we know that it's written not just by one guy, not just by two guys, but also by one guy who happens to be Mr. The Act of Marriage, <laughs> kind of makes the whole romance plot seem weird and a little moralizy. I was talking to a good buddy of mine who listens to the show, and he said, you know that the way that this is written is supposed to be the template for the good Christian courtship and marriage. That's all in there. Did you feel that too? Yeah, yeah. Because uh, kind of like I touched on before, uh, especially with the Rayford Amanda one, it's kind of like like a blessing was given almost by like uh, Irene indirectly, and then the the Chloe and Buck one, they're like, oh, like we're we're both like virgins, so like this is this is gonna like work out. They even like emphasize that they hadn't kissed very much, and when they did, it was like this big to do. And also one little weird note that I want to put about about the Rayford and Amanda one. Amanda is the only character that is older than their uh, love interest. And that is hardly brought up while on the other way around when the man is older, that is uh, like hit upon over and over and over. Amanda's Wait a like minute. A- Amanda's older than Ray. I didn't see, I didn't remember that at all. Just a few years, if I recall correctly. I'll, uh, I'll correct myself if, if I'm wrong, but that was one of the things that I highlighted that got missed in last episode. No, I believe Amanda- you totally, but that, yeah, you're right. That is super weird. Huh. That is so strange because they try to like be like, no, 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 it's, it's okay that there's such an age difference between Chloe and Buck. And then they just sort of blink on by the age difference between Ray and Amanda. They just don't seem to care. Maybe it's because they're older. And like once you get to like past a certain age, age difference doesn't really matter as much. But still, like it, it's it's a weird thing to harp on on one side and then just barely mention it the other. Yeah, and it wouldn't be weird if there was nothing said about it with Chloe and Buck, but they waste a lot of ink Yeah, on Chloe and Buck's age difference and trying to be like, no, we promise it's okay. That's also something that is harped upon in book one with Hattie and Ray as well. Yep, you're right. I got one for you. Okay. So Irene's not dead. Wait, what? She did not die. She was taken to heaven without dying. That was a whole big thing. The coming together of Amanda and Ray with, like you said, sort of the from beyond this world, I'm not going to say from beyond the grave, but from beyond this world blessing from Irene. No, no, no. You guys be together. Be happy. What's going to happen when they all get to heaven? Isn't that like something that's like uh, that's touched upon in the Gospels itself and like, oh, it doesn't matter like how many like wives you've had in this life. Like when you're, I can't remember the exact passage, but I know that's one of the, uh, like something that is elaborated upon in the Gospels. Like, oh, it doesn't matter how many like wives that you have on earth if uh, your spouse dies. It just matters that you're reunited with Jesus, I believe. I- I'm-, I'm paraphrasing the Gospels. I don't recall either. I do know in Mormonism, that is definitely a thing. Um, when you are sealed to someone in Mormonism, that when you pass you know, from this world, you will call them by their, their true name and, and they will be brought to you in the afterlife. Sorry, Mormons, if I butchered that, but you are sealed for a time and sealed for eternity to whomever you are sealed to. And that's what they call it in Mormonism, you know, marriage, you are sealed to someone else. But I mean, I guess they just, it's one of those things that it's like, don't, 
don't think about it too hard. I'm choosing to think about it. It's a little weird. Like probably the way you're supposed to look at it is in heaven and in the perfect new heaven and new earth that everyone is heading toward. We are back in a garden of Eden situation where a sexual desire and a need for procreation and all that stuff. There is no more knowledge of that. Mm -hmm. That's not a thing we do anymore because no one dies. As it was in the Garden of Eden, man becomes pure again with no carnal knowledge of those things. Gotcha. That makes sense? Yeah, yeah. Which, that's one way of looking at it. I mean, it makes heaven sound real boring. (laughs) But, you know, that's just me. The love that is expressed in heaven and the love that is expressed in the presence of God is that agape love. Uh, For those of you who didn't grow up in church, they talk about the different kinds of love and how those are given different words in the original Greek of the New Testament. And agape love is the unconditional love of God. It is a true love that does not contain the eros, the sexual love, and I don't remember the other one. That's the familial love, but it's specifically lacking in that erotic or sexual component. I uh, I actually found uh, what I was talking about, the resurrection and marriage. All right. Oh, hit me. This comes from Luke chapter 20, verses 27 through 38. Some of the Sadducees um, who said there is no resurrection came to Jesus with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now, there were seven brothers. The first married a woman and died childless. The second and then the third married her. In the same way, the seven died, leaving no children. Finally, the woman died too. Now then, at the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Since seven were married to her, Jesus replied, The people of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy of taking part in the age to come and in the resurrection from the dead will neither marry nor be given in marriage, and they can no longer die, for they are like the angels. They are God's children since they are children of the resurrection. But in the account of the burning bush, even Moses showed that the dead rise, for he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the living for him um, are all alive. So that's kind of like what they reference for that. Like marriage is kind of irrelevant because you just become like the angels in heaven where you don't need marriage in heaven, I guess. And and yeah, that kind of tracks with, I guess, what we've been talking about is Jesus like, yeah, just don't worry about it. What you're going to experience when you cross through what Christians might call that veil of tears is going to be so blissful that. All this stuff you're down here worried about isn't going to be a big deal, Mm -hmm. which I mean, you know, that's not a bad way of looking at it. Like I can objectively say like earthly problems are not heavenly problems. Like calm down. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Which like, I mean, if you're Jesus, like that's pretty, that's a pretty like Alexander cutting the Gordian knot way of handling it. So you want to talk about Pharisees and Sadducees for a minute? Because those are some words we've thrown around. Some of our listeners may be unfamiliar with those terms and they hear us saying that and they're like, what are these guys? What are they talking about? I know I know more about the Sadducees than the Pharisees. So I'll cover Sadducees if you want to cover Pharisees. The Sadducees were, if I recall correctly, a, a Jewish sect that did not believe in the resurrection of the soul. And they thought that this life was just it. You're right. Yeah, they didn't believe in the existence of spirits either. Now, when we say religious sect, we're specifically mean Jewish or Hebrew sect in old Judea. 
at the time of Christ. These were religious leaders. These were rabbinical leaders. These were folks who had dedicated their lives to the study of scriptures and to the contemplation of that. They were teachers and priests, and they had that specific belief that is what they had gleaned out of their reading of the scriptures. The Pharisees were ones who were more distinguished by their strict observance of the traditional and the written law, and they were said to commonly have superior sanctity to everyone else. So when people talk about Jesus versus the Pharisees, when you read the New Testament, you hear Jesus kind of having this cool alternative approach to the Bible as a teacher. He's a lot more, you know, God is love, God loves you, God loves the world, and it's clashing with a lot of the more legalistic interpretations of the law of Moses that would have been coming from the Pharisees at the time. Right, and I believe uh, they had like very elaborate uh, rites and rituals to when like when you enter a holy place, you had to wear certain garments and do certain things with those garments when you're in the place and make sure that you're completely like scrubbed and clean. Uh, I, I believe, right? Yes, they they believed that the law of Moses was twofold. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm pulling this actually from uh, the Encyclopedia Britannica. They believed that the law that God gave to Moses was twofold, consisting of the written law and the oral law, i.e. the teachings of the prophets, and then the oral traditions of the Jewish people that would have been passed down from the time of Moses. The law of Moses, quote, is more referring to the Deuteronomic law that would have been handed down during that time period. And so it's more than just Ten Commandments, because people think Moses, they think Ten Commandments, you know. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not have any idols, yada, 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 all the way down through the Ten. There's way more than that. You get into Leviticus, you get into Deuteronomy, all books purported to have been written by Moses himself that contain all kinds of laws. There's laws in there for what to do if your house has mold in it. Like there's a lot. (laughs) So that's why a lot of times when you hear specifically with Christians that are bringing up, well, God says do this and God says these people can't be saved and God says these people are sinners. Folks in counter to that will pull out books like Leviticus and go, well, you guys believe the whole Bible and this book says don't eat shellfish. So uh, you can't go to Red Lobster anymore. Sorry, buddy. That's when they like to pivot to, yeah, but uh, 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 that's the Old Testament law and Jesus, uh, Jesus said that doesn't count anymore. It's weird because it's like this kind of thing, like the book doesn't count anymore, but there's like certain sections that like still do kind of count that you need to follow. It's weird. Gavin, the sections count that I want to count and I happen to not want to make this gay wedding cake. So that part counts. <laughs> Damn it. That was always like the weirdest part growing up because that would actually be the exact thing I bring up. Like, hey, if you're this... Uh, passionate about gay marriage why aren't you like passionate about the other stuff and i just and i would never get a straight answer now go pick at a red lobster let's let's start it and then hashtag boycott red lobster (laughs) get (laughs) them and and you know religion changes with the times man you know this as well as i do that yeah you know at religions and and holy books are they're mirrors they're not maps yeah oh dude i'm going to i'm going to copyright that one right now yeah that's a that's a shane original yeah holy books are mirrors not maps they reflect the time in which they're being read they don't guide it 
And that kind of also flows into the axiom, the the map is not the territory either. Yeah, when you're thinking about reality and, you know, kind of how societies bend to stuff. I mean, that extends to these books that we're reading now. Like, we're sitting here, we've talked for 20 minutes about the between-the-lines morality play that's going on just in Tribulation Force when it comes to things like sex and marriage. That's a lot of this book. Like, Mm -hmm. sorry we opened up a book expecting more thriller stuff and we got kind of a weird finger-wagging lecture on sex and marriage that we weren't interested in getting, but it reflects the times. And now we're reading it in 2021 and going, oh, come on, dude. What else did I not like about Tribulation Force? Like, we're eventually going to get to the stuff we actually like, but we're still in the book bad portion of this. Oh, yeah. the Another part was something that we've started to notice and where where I, I'm kind of like making predictions and stuff along the way. And some of those predictions might be valid when uh, um, if the book had good literary structure because like I'm uh, a show that I've been watching recently that is good writing Mad Men I've been uh, I've been like pointing out like oh I make this prediction because this explicit thing was said early on and uh, my friend's been like oh yeah absolutely like uh, you're, you're starting to pick up what's being put down Left behind, I think we use the term Chekhov's gun, yeah. which which Tim LaHaye and Jeremy Bank- Jenkins don't always do. They'll just put in stuff for filler that they never come back to. That's like when I was talking about the aid Rob when uh, Fitzhugh was like talking to Buck and like trying to like get some details about what was going on. One of my predictions was, oh, I bet Rob is like a leak to Carpathia, but that might not actually be true. <laughs> And that would be a good plot point to, like, further explore. But that's not something that we've seen, like, elaborate upon yet. I hope Rob comes back. Even in the margins of the book, I'm like, oh, man, it'd be cool to see this, like, nervous guy, like, be offered something big by Carpathia to, like, uh, rat out the president. That'd be cool. But that's assuming that these books have coherent uh, literary structure. Yeah, exactly. So Chekhov's gun is a literary axiom. Um, It's basically like a guide that if you mention a gun in act one of a play, that gun has to go off by act three Mm -hmm. or else don't put it in there at all. It's dumb to put it in there. I think one of my favorites is in Shaun of the Dead Mm -hmm. when they literally have a rifle over the bar and the pub's called the Winchester. Ah, I think I think that's one of my favorite Chekhov's guns. Um, you see it in in good screenwriting or in just good fiction writing in general. When you have something like that and it doesn't pay off, I think that shows more of the ulterior motives that LaHaye and Jenkins, specifically LaHaye, have. Because I think we talked about this earlier, way back in some of the early episodes. Uh, LaHaye gave Jenkins like binders full of notes of like these outlines have to get hit in order to fulfill prophecy jenkins kind of had to hit him story structure and and good plot and pacing be damned you know what i mean yeah yeah and like i I guess that's one of his hindrances because i've not read any of jenkins other books and i kind of uh like last episode i was just like you've written like 90 bajillion books jenkins act like it and you know i've not read any of his other stuff so i'm not sure like when he's not working with LaHaye, what kind of stuff that he produces with his other books. Maybe he's decent with it. But if he has, like, really good talent, it's not really showing consistently through the two that we've read so far. Right. You know, I think that mostly what we're going to rely on as these stories go forward is more and more cool supernatural stuff to happen because it gets weird. But yeah, you're right that in terms of story structure, this is not good. And that like we talked about the time skip. We were very angry about the time skip left behind Shippuden. 
um, and how we got to that point that there's really just no reason for it. Like you could have spent less time lecturing us about marriage and sexual purity in the first two thirds of the book. And you could have spent that time showing us scenes of water turning into blood or blood turning into water or more scenes of dudes getting burnt alive. Like you could have shown us more cool stuff, but you didn't. Mm -hmm. You wanted to spend time on Buck and Chloe cookie stuff. And, you know, maybe not. You could have spent more time on the Ray and Amanda thing. Could have just made this a book about relationships. And I'm sure that if you asked Lahan Jenkins, they would say, oh, this one's more about relationships. Yeah, it is, but it's only about one. And then you shuffle one off into and then and then and then in the back of the book, like the last 20 pages. And arguably, like, Rayford's relationship is more plot uh, important than Chloe and Buck's. I mean, obviously... They're like main characters too, but Rayford's the first character that we see. So he's kind of like set up as our main protagonist. There's there's like a small tad of misogyny there where like it's where she's just kind of like thrown in where she's just like, oh, yep, uh, uh, Rayford has a wife now that we don't know much about, which hopefully in Nikolai onward, we get a little bit more uh, Amanda stuff because I'm actually intrigued to see like what she's about, but unfortunately that just doesn't get elaborated on i don't think you're gonna get your wish buddy i'm sorry i don't recall her getting that kind of character growth that kind of dedicated screen time that that i think you want and speaking of that and characters not getting their due and just sort of being poorly written we had sort of a general outline we wanted to talk about and about book bad also let's kind of talk about content bad like not just story structure bad this is the book that managed to double down on the anti-Catholic and anti-Jewish sentiment from the first book in a big way. Mm. And I think it is encapsulated in two characters, Peter Matthews mm-hmm. and in Zion Ben-Judah. Yeah, touching on Zion real quick. He's kind of set up as a guy that's been doing like research for a while. And I think the reason that he doesn't open up of his findings is that he's largely unsure before he meets Buck and Eli and Moisha. If I'm kind of reading in between the the lines a little bit, would you agree with that? I I think you're right about that. Yeah. And the the reenactment of uh, John chapter three with Nicodemus that we read last week. I think he's put forward as kind of a a hand puppet for LaHaye and what he thinks of of what Jews' place in the world is. Because as a white Anglo-Saxon Protestant who thoroughly thinks he knows exactly how the world needs to be, of course he's going to say, hey, you entire group of people with your own faith and culture and traditions and everything, by the end times, you are going to have to conform to exactly what I think my book says you need to do. Another character that kind of highlights that same thing is like Haim gets more of that treatment in this book as well. Like even like um, uh, the peace delegation, like Israel signing thing, when they're talking about like taking everyone's nukes away, everyone is upset except Haim. So like Haim is also presented as this like aloof character that doesn't realize what's happening. He's painted as kind of a fool. And there are a couple of characters like this. Hattie is there and Chaim is there to a degree, but don't don't worry too much about Chaim. We'll we'll keep going and, and see more of his story. He does get a little more of an arc. Okay. But they are painted as sort of the what profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul. Mm-hmm. Sort of people, sort of the fools that go down that path and are deceived. Hattie, especially because she gets risen from obscurity. Chaim was already a celebrated figure. 
Hattie comes from relative obscurity and is then lifted up onto the arm of the most powerful man in the history of the world. But as Chloe says, we have failed that woman. It is at the cost of her soul. Right. Hattie had, could have had so much potential. And like, like, all right, even if you want to set her up as like an antagonist figure, I, I don't like how they're kind of doing it. <laughs> it's kind of like shallow. Yeah, they do her dirty. It's not great. There's a way to write a character like her without just having her be a temptress, toady, utterly unlikable person. Right. Um, especially after writing her in a way in the first book that was at least mildly sympathetic. Mm-hmm. It doesn't honestly feel like the same character. If you want to make her an antagonist, there's a way to make her like a powerful female antagonist. Like if she is a working with the Antichrist, there's like plenty of like really good villains in literature that you could look at their art, how they go from like very innocent, you wouldn't expect them to do this to that kind of deal. And we just don't see that. Yeah, they they kind of fridge Hattie by putting a baby in her. Yeah, because I had the, I, I knew that that sort of thing was going to happen with just the prediction of like what Hattie symbolizes in a context of Revelation with being the whore of Babylon. But I didn't expect her to like be having the baby this soon. Yeah, they kind of just put it out there. Yeah. And then let's go on to Peter Matthews for a second. Yeah, I would like to hear your perspective on the Pontifex Maximus himself. Uh, Well, they obviously like set up Peter Matthews as being like this dictatorial like leader that manages to rise through the ranks. And like there are some like legitimate uh, criticisms that you can make of Catholicism, but uh, Left Behind goes really just heavy handed with it. It has that kind of like Protestant bias. One of my weird side hobbies is I like to watch internet debates between Protestants and Catholics and see how things like transpire. And it definitely reads like a really angry Protestant, just like engaging in a flame war via literature. Yeah, I'm going to set up this Catholic straw man um, in a position of power in order to strike down what I think these dirty papists believe. Because like, I know that we got, we talked about this in the first book of like how the Pope like converted to Martin Luther or the teachings of Martin Luther at the last minute. That is just totally just left field, bizarre, like route to go, especially because of the, the process the Cardinals go through that. I don't think that that would slip through the radar. Like, oh yeah, there, we have this one Cardinal that's like really interested in the teachings of Martin Luther to the degree of he's starting to look like a Protestant. Yeah. At that point, he's just a Protestant convert and like, hey, get out. I think we're supposed to think that he did it after becoming Pope. Like it was a revelation he discovered after he ascended to that position. I, uh, right? I'd agree with that. And oh, I need to actually make a correction that I, I stated in an earlier episode. I said that what makes a Catholic saint is that you have to be confirmed um, to be in heaven. It's a little bit more of a complex process than that. Like once the Catholic dies, you have to wait a few years before they can even um, be considered. And then you have to have confirmation that a miracle has happened in the name of that saint twice. So that was the, the, the few extra steps that I missed that they actually have to have miracles attributed to that saint post-mortem. Okay, so there's, yeah, there's more to the beatification process than just, you know, kind of what we'd mentioned earlier. Mm-hmm. I'm glad you said that. I also have a correction, not to get us too far off the Catholic topic, because I want to come right back to this. 
it's not really a correction so much as an omission that I did that I feel really bad about because I'm probably going to get added, like people being like, how could you miss this? How could you not mention this? Talked about the Four Horsemen. I mentioned World of Warcraft. I mentioned Darksiders. I mentioned Good Omens. I mentioned other pieces of media. I completely glossed over X-Men. Oh, really? I don't know how I did it. I can't believe I did it. I did not mention the character of Apocalypse and his lieutenants, the four horsemen in Marvel Comics that are always, whenever Apocalypse is centered as a villain in the story, he always has his four horsemen, and it's been a rotating roster, and they're always awesome. Um, So, mea culpa, mea maxima culpa. Everybody, I forgot X-Men. I'm sorry. (laughs) I'm glad you covered that. Yeah. (laughs) So I want to jump back on Matthews for a second. And this is not really a spoiler if you're reading Revelation. And I think, Gab, you've caught on to this as well. Mm -hmm. Matthews is filling the role of a character mentioned by name in Revelation. He is going to take the figure of the false prophet. Or he is going to rise to become the figure of the false prophet. By doing that, that is the worst Catholic bashing that these books are capable of doing. And I think that really what we need to take away from this with LaHaye's worldview and the worldview that they are trying to push is that the enemy here is not necessarily Catholicism. It's not Orthodox Judaism. It's not Rastafarianism. It's not any of these religions that get mentioned because I think those are the three. It's not really Islam. It's not really Hinduism. These are not the enemy. The enemy in LaHaye's mind is pluralism. Huh. Because remember, what is Enigma Babylon but a pluralistic set of beliefs? Ah. And those who oppose it are intolerant. Pluralism Mm. is a component of globalism. Globalism is the enemy. So all of these more liberal ideals of a connected world, of a globalized world, of a world where cultures coexist and get along in peace is the enemy. So if that's the kind of guy who's writing your books, of course we get figures like this. And I've said in previous episodes, we don't ever want to get too far afield and kind of lost in the sauce, having fun with this, that we forget there's really nasty, dangerous stuff in here. When you see why, or when you're looking at these characters being written in the way that they are, the reason they are painted as evil is because they want to see the world get together and get along versus LaHaye and his crew that would rather not see that. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And it's only going to get more and more overt as we continue going on. As there is more enmity between the Tribulation Force and the global community, that is going to be more of a forefront. I mean, hell, the global community are the bad guys. Oof. And, you know, again, we talked about... <laughs> Last week, this hitting different in 2021, previously in 2020, like yikes on bikes, dude. You're, you're hearing the same kind of conspiracy theories get touted right now. I wonder if these books will make a resurgence in this decade too by uh, some of these groups because they do, they are kind of like a hyperbolized fantasy of a lot of these beliefs. I want to give some context to something I said last week because it was kind of inflammatory if you knew what I was referencing. Mm -hmm. I called these books the Turner Diaries for Evangelicals. I don't want to give too much airtime to the even the idea of the Turner Diaries, but the Turner Diaries were a book written by a Nazi, a neo-Nazi, about a future war 
that was going to happen between the true patriots of America and the rest of the liberal world. And he uses much stronger terms and a lot of very charged, racial, disgusting language. They're horrible. They're terribly written. They're really written more to get across what he thinks should happen should the the true sons of the white race rise up and take back their country. But there are a lot of similarities in the way that the plot takes a back seat to just crafting events as the author would like to see them play out. Mm-hmm. For him, it's political uprising. For LaHaye, it's prophecy. So it acts as wish fulfillment, fan fiction, fantasy, and a reaffirmation of faith in an idea. I am like your friend said, Gavin, you don't read left behind to get into Christianity. You read them when you're already in. Mm -hmm. So when I was referring to them as the Turner diaries for evangelicals, I am not calling evangelicals neo-Nazis, though there are neo-Nazis that are, Um, I'm not calling them white nationalists or extremists. I am saying that there are specific structural similarities between that book and these. I, I can see that because uh, I've uh, I've read a little bit about like the Turner Diaries just in my uh, my research on anti-Semitism and yeah that I can definitely I can definitely see that comparison. Way more mainstream than the Turner Diaries. These books, way more market penetration, way more easy to swallow. Mm-hmm. But and you know some of the messaging is similar. And so as I said in the previous off the record, we have fun. Let's not forget, especially in January of 2021. Some of these ideas are dangerous. Right. I did want to point out one other extra thing as we're starting to close out here. The John chapter three. I don't know if you caught this because we've talked about the characters of Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, from the book of Exodus. And then Elijah. Moses, of course, from the book of Exodus. And then Elijah um, as the prophetic figure that came to redeem Israel later in the Old Testament when they were worshiping false gods. So you have the figures of Moses and Elijah. They have shown up multiple times, even in the New Testament. Jesus, I believe, on the Mount of Transfiguration, which is a short little episode in one of the Gospels. I don't recall which one off the top of my head. Has a moment where he takes on his heavenly form and has a conversation with Moses and Elijah. Moses and Elijah are kind of considered some of the highest of the Old Testament patriarchs. They're there with Abraham, Jacob, and Isaac. They're really up there. But as far as prophets of God, they kind of even occupy a higher tier. And one of the things that stuck out to me, even reading the Bible itself, was Jesus actually says, No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man, referring to himself, which is actually not accurate if you're taking the whole Bible as truth, because there are two individuals who are actually taken directly to to God, directly to heaven in the Old Testament. And one was Enoch that you may have heard of, and one was Elijah. Mm -hmm. Elijah was actually not, he never died. He was taken directly to God through a whirlwind, actually. So a tornado came down, grabbed Elijah, took him directly to God. He did not have to die. So when you think about rapture imagery and the promise of the rapture that Christians look forward to, a lot of them say, we will ascend to heaven like Elijah. So having the character of Eli now as one of the two witnesses, it's all kind of connecting back into that Old Testament feel. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just thought that was kind of funny that I sort of had to be like, hey, Jesus, not quite, buddy. I actually, uh, uh, well, actually, Jesus, it says right here. (laughs) So let this be the episode that I, well, technically, Jesus. 
Um, you got anything else? Uh, yeah, I actually wanted to close us out uh, with in the second episode of this book, I kind of mentioned something that got cut short due to a, a slight hardware failure. During, oh, yeah. When I brought this point about Pascal's casino. Now, uh, that was a reference to the uh, the Pascal's wager uh, put forth by Blaise Pascal, which is one of the most common arguments that gets put forth for the uh, for the existence of God where you bet with your life whether God exists or not. And I, uh, I I said that wasn't quite complete because there's so many different interpretations of Christianity and religion that whenever you put your faith and belief in just one of them, it's a big gamble to whether or not you're kind of like using the right slot machine so to speak, because me and you have grown up in a very Protestant, evangelical way. We know a lot more information about these things. And thus, I guess the kind of rapture scare thing will always be present with this podcast. And I've kind of even started experiencing a, a slight bits of that again. And it's kind of weird. <laughs> I'm sorry. I didn't. I didn't mean to to pull out that old anxiety by asking you to do the show with me. No, dude. No, like because <laughs> I know full well exactly what you're talking about. No, and like it's 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 part of the course of just me being religious because in, me and you have talked a little bit off mic about this experience. How anytime because like I'm returning to religion and trying to make my own sense of it and trying to formulate my own beliefs. And because I grew up in an evangelical upbringing, my mind will kind of like autofill. Sometimes like, oh man, you're kind of uh, working with Satan here doing this podcast. <laughs> right. We're doing, we're doing free labor for Satan, which like, I mean, I mean that, that needs to be on a t-shirt doing free labor, <laughs> free for, labor Satan. for Satan. That for, first, uh-huh. uh, first bit for merch. But yeah, I just wanted like that, that whole like Pascal's casino thing and how the, that, because we grew up in that kind of environment, that kind of doesn't go away. And no matter how old we get, there will always be that lingering, anxious fear that, oh, we're f***ing up. That kind of just gets into the insidiousness of how some brands of evangelicalism kind of get at you young and so that you're never truly fully out of it, so to speak, because you have that programming and that knowledge kind of similar to how we uh, touched upon 1984 and how, uh, and in a way, this this th- this podcast is almost like our own personal room 101, where we're just having to look at thousands of pages of this old programming and tr- and uh and it's it's both good and bad. Like um, in returning to it, we're slowly dissecting these things that we were taught and breaking them down to the point where they might not hurt us anymore. But in doing that, there's always a chance that these things will creep back to us. And I I just think that's kind of interesting. And it also highlights why I want to do this podcast to help kind of dissect these things and like get myself to a point where I don't have to fear that stuff anymore, uh, so to speak. Yeah, dude. Yeah, I agree 100%. And I think that more so than we probably thought when we got started, this has been kind of therapy. Mm-hmm. for us unpacking some of the stuff that we grew up with and that we were indoctrinated with um, and that we accepted without question and that has kind of lived rent-free in our brains for the majority of our lives into adulthood. And I'm I'm glad we're doing it. Yeah, same here. So, and especially I'm glad if this kind of stuff does start to make a resurgence with a lot of weird conspiracy stuff that is that is going more mainstream. I hope a lot of people who start reading these find this podcast so that, hey, 
Books are bad. Books are bad and they're bad for you. They're bad and they're bad for you. In the words of George Carlin. That's why we say we read them so you don't have to. Mm-hmm. And hopefully people who have discovered these and they want to learn more, find us and we can be like, hey, maybe take a chill pill, my guy. Right. Um, here's all the reasons why you should calm down. So you want to you go ahead and put a, put a stake in this monster? Let's go ahead and you want to go ahead and lay this monster to rest? Yeah, uh, I just want to do one thing. If you are uh, deciding to read along with us, there's actually like, because if you're just that intrigued, by the concept, they actually want to go long form. Uh, please buy these secondhand. <laughs> yeah, 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 don't give uh, don't give these publishing houses any more of your money. Okay, and yeah, let's uh, you know, let's let's put a stake in in tribulation force. So I don't have to look at this until the movie again. Yeah, <laughs> until the movie, right? But hey, we'll we'll get drunk for the movie. <laughs> All right, so let's go ahead and give her a horseman. Uh, how many horsemen out of four are you giving this? One, two, three, four. I- I don't even want to like put put a horse on it. Like it's like this happens before the rapture, so to speak. But I have to. So one, this is Kong. You gonna give it a one? Yeah, this is yeah. one. I think you could have given it maybe a horseshoe, but nah. Yeah. You're gonna, yeah, I get it. You <laughs> give it a one. Yeah, it's gonna be a one for me too, man. Uh, this doesn't even scratch it. Like I I can't go back to this one. I was so utterly underwhelmed. Bad book, bad message, not good. Hopefully Nikolai will be better. Hopefully. Um, speaking of that, let's go ahead and tee up our next installment as I read you from Amazon.com, the plot summary of Nikolai, Rise of the Antichrist. Global community forces have shattered U.S. cities. Nikolai Carpathia promises peace urges global unity as the military vows to eliminate the insurgent tribulation force. Oh, man. Yeah, all right. <laughs> um, so things are going to get more violent. Um, we're doing more World War Three stuff. Nukes are out of the bag. The nukes are out of the bag. Something's already been nuked. So we are going to drop in with higher stakes. Hopefully we can stay on target and focus on the cool stuff, uh, Jenkins. It's been a while since I've read this one, and I'm going to need a little bit of goodness from you here, buddy. All right. Thank you guys for joining us for our second Off the Record episode. I have been Shane Bazell. And I've been Gavin Russell. And until next time, uh, don't... Don't buy these books firsthand. Thriftbooks.com is a great resource. Oh, thank you. That's a good one. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Bye. Okay, that's our show. Please remember to subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast. And uh, join the community on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, all at Rapture Podcasts. Uh, You can email us at rapturepod at gmail.com, and we really want to hear from you. Thanks for listening.